Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. Nobody says like, I'm recovered from diabetes. So saying I've recovered from whatever, fill in the blank, that's a chronic lifelong disease most of the time. It just doesn't make sense. Right. But I don't, I don't like, the yeah, only time yeah, I correct I, people, I correct people if I hear dirty or, or, or clean. clean. That's the big, yeah. Okay. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loblastingame, and I am your host. Today on Ask the Expert, we have Dr. Jason Powers. Dr. Jason Powers is the creator of the positive recovery approach to treating addiction and serves as chief medical officer of positive recovery centers. Dr. Jason has a private addiction medicine practice in Houston, Texas, works as an interventionist, and is a published author of When the Servant Becomes the Master, the A to Z guide of all things related to addiction, and the Positive Recovery Daily Guide, a self-help guide full of positive interventions that are designed to intentionally boost what leads to human happiness positive emotions, engagement, relationships, meaning, and achievement. Dr. Jason is board certified in family medicine and addiction medicine. He received a master's in positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. And Dr. Jason currently resides in Houston with his wife and three children. My friends, I cannot wait for you to hear about positive psychology and how it is helping people in recovery so awesome. Big thing we discussed is that relieving misery is not building happiness. And that's why we have to build that skill. Dr. Jason talks about this and it is so eye-opening and helpful, especially those of us who've been doing this a long time. It's important to build the skills that allow us to build happiness and have an engaging, meaningful sobriety. So I'm not going to spoil it with any more information. I, I Please stick around, check out Dr. Jason Powers' books, and I hope you enjoy this episode of Ask the Expert. All right, episode 123. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Hi, Dr. Jason. How are you? I, I'm well. I'm well. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. I, um, I've listened to a couple of your interviews and I'm a big fan of positive psychology. So I'm really excited to talk to you about it. I learned, I learned some interesting things recently that I want to ask you about with regard to positive psychology. But first, I want to start... This is an episode of Ask the Expert. So you are here as an expert... But I think one of the things that makes you an even more qualified expert is your own experience 
And I just wanted to give our listeners a little background about your recovery. So I was uh, born in Houston, Texas, uh, middle child of three, you know, middle class. Dad was a lawyer. Mother was um, in-house. She worked in-home. Um, raising kids is, uh, I find way more work than my work than working out of the home. So that's how I kind of refer. I ask women when I interview them, like, do you work in the home or out of the home? Because my God. So enough tangents. I um, remember having the first inclination of what I wanted to do when I was older. And I told my mom very proudly, I want to work at, I think it was called Sunny's, And it's a convenience store because that's where all the candy was, like the mm-hmm. sugar. And that was easily my first drug of choice. There's a lot of everything in my family. So family of origin stuff is rich. You can fill in the gap with absolutely everything, unfortunately, including a lot of people with addictions to sugar, been, uh, you know, and then in a wide variety of substances and processes and all that. So, I, you know, I used to, I used to sneak, you know, sugar and hide it. And if I had money, I'd go to the convenience store and, and just get bags of whatever I could. Loved it. Loved the way it made me feel. Loved the way it changed, you know, how I felt. I've always, like, I always kind of describe my overall outlook was that it seemed to me everybody else had a guidebook on, on like how to do this thing called life, how to, how to socialize, how, how to navigate challenges, obstacles, disappointments, and, you know, interactions with adults and what, what everything. Uh, I just always seemed to be on an uneven playing field, no matter what I did. And, and it's kind of wretched to have that feeling, but man, sugar. And then later in the summer before ninth grade, I tried marijuana. My brother, who was my idol, my hero, um, told me it was cool and offered it to me and my friends. And like, you know, the whole just say no was I was inundated with it. And of course, like a never did any talking about it with my parents or no like um, role playing, which we know helps tremendously for prevention. But I, I just, there was like no defense against a hero offering you that. Mm, and mm. then bodies, you know, um, luckily I've had like a group of us were pretty tight in middle school and high school and college and after, and, you know, if they wanted to do it, that, that was like, that was all, all the push I need, my brother and my buddies. And I, I loved it right away. It had the same effect as sugar. And that was to not make me feel so wretched and to feel like, like happy. You know, there's a word for it, it's like clinical depression, right? You can call it depression, but it was, I mean, and I, I don't know that that word does it justice because there's a lot of people who, you know, just had the same feeling I did kind of don't fit in, don't really understand how to navigate life and all that. And, you know, part of it could be trauma, but, you know, finding marijuana and then later alcohol and then later experimenting with everything like LSD, ecstasy, all this in high school and and then in, in college, but I always kind of knew I was going to be a doctor and my grades were horrible. Like my freshman year of college, I was nocturnal and I got like a 2.0, which if you know, it's kind of tough to get in med school with that. So I, um, I spent the rest of college kind of like digging myself out of a hole and, you know, smoking marijuana, getting drunk, just kind of like you do at that age, but nothing, nothing major. I didn't go off the deep end doing anything. And I got my GPA up, rocked an MCAT, rocked the MCAT, got in med school and in med school would party in between test blocks. But again, completely impossible to have like out of control addiction 
in medical school, just the volume of information that you have to memorize and regurgitate. It's crazy. And then uh, residency, same thing. Like I just couldn't get away with it. But like once I finished residency, once I was fully boarded, once there was no more eyes on me, like no more supervision, then, you know, I, I was off to the races. Like I hit a bottom. It was just like, bam. And then for about a year, just dragging on the bottom. It was terrible. I had an intervention, was not at all. I did not think that stopping was possible. By this point, I was taking handfuls and handfuls of pain medicine, um, drinking it down with pain, cough syrup, like hydrocodone syrup, taking benzos to sleep, just like whatever. It was like, it was so bad. I tried to stop a thousand times. I just couldn't. So when the intervention happened, I, um, I, I was like, well, I have to go in to this treatment. I have to comply or they're going to tell the Texas State Board of Medical Examiners taking away any anything I had that made me feel, uh, you know, like had meaning in my life really. Although I was married with a kid, I wasn't all that sober. I, I just didn't think it was possible to stop. And yet in rehab, I, I met a doctor there who was like on his fifth rehab, fourth wife. He looked 20 years older than he was. And, uh, you know, we hit it off. Dude. We were like talking after every meal because I, I was full of shit. He was full of shit. And then I realized like, you know what, if I'm lucky, I'm going to end up like this person. Right. That's if I'm lucky. That would right. be the best case That's scenario. The best case scenario. Right. That was a path I was on. And so I, uh, I actually, I had not intended, but I had like drugs hidden everywhere. So there was a bunch in my socks. I was able to kind of stave off this horrible withdrawal, but I realized like, okay, I got to just try it. I was afraid to admit I was an addict. I thought that would be a fate worse than death because I knew how the medical establishment viewed addicts. And that's with a lot of disdain, not just, you know, judgment, but shame and, and, and just terrible. And I thought, okay, my life's over. Nobody's going to, nobody's going to refer to me. I'm a doctor addict. That's crazy. But I also had this like thing to compare it to. I'm like, well, it's worse to end up like that. So I'll let the chips fall where they may. I flushed them at, you know, whatever I had down the toilet and then subsequently went into like probably the worst withdrawal I, I still have seen. I was taking a lot. I had a DEA license. I would order drugs wholesale and, uh, and it was just terrible, terrible. But, and, you know, it was a great experience because like the thought of taking, uh, of doing, you know, doing pain medicine, taking, you know, Percocet or Oxycodone or even a Vicodin or a Tylenol 3 or taking a Xanax, say, I know nothing good is going to come of it. I don't need a, like, I don't need a reminder for me. Relapsing would be akin to like sticking my face in a jet turbine. Like there would be no good, right? It's not, there's no, there's no benefit to it. There's no upside. Uh, Unfortunately, like, you know, my drugs experience kind of started with food and with sugar and, and it still is an issue. I, I, you know, I, I know a lot about the brain chemistry and there's similarities between people who have, you know, more obesity or, you know, compulsive overeating or whatever you want to call it. In OA, we say, you know, you wear this disease on the outside. You can't really tell if somebody is, is, a, is an alcoholic unless, you know, they're like under a bridge with a bag and they're like, they smell like it and they rah. But, but, you know, it's just tough because with drugs, I just put them away, alcohol put away. I don't need to take them out and use them and then put them back. But generally you eat a few times a day. And so learning how to sort of navigate that is tough, challenging. I'm totally imperfect, but uh, you know, it's, I'm not far removed from reminders that I I just am a deep end type of guy. Right. And 
<laughs> totally. So thank you for sharing that. And I think some big things that jump out to me that that I heard that I've heard you say, you know, one of which is that the medical community sees people who struggle with addiction, who have a, you know, who have down regulation in their brain, or they don't have enough dopamine receptors, or they're not, you know, they don't not making enough dopamine, people with these these struggles as morally inept. And in their defense, we do some pretty awful shit. So, you know, we we don't always represent ourselves so well, I, I might say. However, I think as a physician, there is power in understanding what it's like to be the person and what it's like to be the provider, to be, to be the, you know, the, the healer, so to speak. And we are so often talking about how to change the perception. And I think a big place we need to change that perception is in the medical community. Do you think that that's possible? Yeah, I do. I do. And while, you know, there's a lot to unpack, I, I will say it's, it's just a rare disease that gets identified and referred for treatment outside of like a primary care doctor's office because addiction is recognized in the ER and in the courtrooms, right? It's police. The police don't identify diabetics and, you know, bring them into the doctor's office. It's the primary care doctor 99% of the time. Same with you, the whole range of, of things. So yeah, our behavior is also accompanied usually by you know, police or other family members, there's like, it causes big problems. So the entry into the medical establishment has a lot to do with it also, but I, I do have hope. And, and, you know, I will say that we don't learn a lot about it. Like I, I say often, I didn't know anything about addiction until I was a patient in rehab. <laughs> like you said, that's, that's pretty I, much I believe, I believe it. I mean, yeah. Like, but I, I remember sitting in, in rehab in process group and I, I just got it like intuitively, you know, like I was able to like almost finished the lecture. And then, you know, the, the counsel that was giving it, like kind of encouraged me to get into this and it's, it's been great, but I didn't know, I didn't know anything uh, really. I, I, I was taught that alcoholics have a librium deficiency, meaning they come into the ER, right. And alcohol withdrawals or, or DTs. And our job was to, this is what I heard word for word from more than one provider. This was calm. This is common. I'm sure it's still taught. Like we just need to give them enough Librium so they don't have a seizure and so they can go back on their bar stool because that's where they want to be. Thinking, you know, it, it's such a it's such a fatalistic, yeah, wrong view of you know of that particular substance use disorder. But yeah, you know, addiction medicine is now a board recognized by the American College of Medical Examiners. So you know, the fact that people have a, a board. Uh, has a lot to do with bringing legitimacy to the field. There's a lot of, yeah. there's enough science, there's enough research that we have a legitimate place. Um, so there's there's hope there. You know, there's other obstacles. I mean, I'm trying to think for other indicators. That, that's probably the biggest one. We do have a lot of medications that we didn't, we only used to have antabuse, the one that makes you sick when when you take it. But now we've got, a you know, Vivitrol or Naltrexone, mm -hmm. you know, Camprol, and there's a lot of other things off-label. We've got medication-assisted therapy with buprenorphine. Of course, methadone has been around a while. But So interesting thing about that's, that's different about what you do 
is your, the treatment center and the modality that you use is based on positive psychology. And um, my, my, my introduction to positive psychology was actually through Sean Acor at Harvard, who wrote The Happiness Advantage. And this was a couple years ago. I had my entire team as a, as a, in order to do this offsite, everybody had to read the book and bring it and annotate it. And it was a really cool experience. I was so jazzed about it. And uh, I was listening to a TED talk by Martin Sligman, who said something that blew my socks off. And I want to integrate, I want it to sort of as our segue into what you're doing that is different and important, which is that there is that relieving misery is different from building happiness and that relieving misery takes you to zero and then you build happiness on top of it and that those are two different skills and no one taught me that getting sober they taught me how to relieve my misery but my building happiness has been you know, a, a comedy of <laughs> a comedy of errors and and the different types of um, I think it's the pleasure life, the pleasurable life, the good life, and the meaningful life, and how the you know we seek this pleasurable life, the thing that brings us the most pleasure, right? Excites us the most, but that without the the engagement and the the meaning, the flow that it's actually doesn't increase your happiness. And so I've spent many of the, you know, early years, I've been sober almost 16 years, but my in my early years, spent a lot of time seeking the pleasurable life, right? And seeking things that just made me feel good in that moment. No one told me about the other stuff and about having to build happiness and those skills. And I feel like, what you're doing in your treatment center, which is, and, and, and your work, which is based on this idea of skill building for happiness is about extending recovery, not just getting into it. Right, right. So yeah, the places where Marty, I call him Marty. Marty. studied him. He's a great guy. Yeah. He, um, Martin Zogman, he, uh, so I think that Ted talk was like the alpha. So his beta version was that there's there's five areas where we find human happiness. That is like human beings that aren't under duress of their own free will will pursue happiness via P-E-R-M-A, where P is positivity. And this is where where you where pleasurable things would fall into. It's positive emotions. Most people, when they talk about happiness, they're talking about P. They're talking about just P. But there's four other buckets. There's E, engagement, which is flow. So perma sounds better than firma. So en- engagement is when is when well, you're. In- yeah. Can you talk about like the flow state a little bit? Because I think I'm about to, yeah, 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 yeah. So e in perma, p e r m a e is proxy. It's engagement proxy for flow. So it's when you engage your character strengths in the right amount, and you enter the state of flow. And it was Doctor Mihal Csikszentmihalyi who has an amazing story, right? Like last train out of Czechoslovakia or Budapest or whatever. His family was, you know, I think it was the tail end of the Ottoman empire or whatever. They were the haves. And, you know, there's a big difference between haves and have nots in that era. And, um, you know, so his, his family was in the upper echelon and it was world war two. They were, you know, last train out. Then of course, you know, everything fell apart. All the, you know, the fabric of society fell apart. And he, 
and he was watching adults. He was a tiny kid at this time, and he watched watching the adults. And he's like, you know what, human human adults do not know how to behave because you know the people that had all the power they they just kind of fell apart, and people that seemingly weren't important in society were like the glue. And so he 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 also around the same time uh, or maybe a little bit older went and heard Carl Jung speak in, I want to say Vienna, but I doubt it since it was in world two and he's already older. So it's probably somewhere else, but um, he like learned English from Bazooka Joe gum cartoons. And he got in, he got in and graduated from university of Chicago with a PhD. And like, I don't know, like something crazy, like three or five years, like undergrad. I mean, he's one of those guys. So long story short is he studied, he studied human behavior. He wanted to see like what's optimal human behavior. And uh, you know, I, I can tell you all about how we found this out, but basically op- optimal human behavior is when you enter the state of flow. And the thing is, it's because flow is when you lose sense of space and time, you lose sense of yourself. And that's important because the mind is a mess. This is what Marty will tell you. It's like the mind is a mess. It's like we have a running like awareness of what's going on only in here and then all the doubts. And, and then I'm aware that I'm aware that I'm aware that I just right, add right. Infinite, you know, if you have an inner critic like me, it's like, it's not pretty. So like the mind's a mess. Anything to get out of that is great. And addiction can develop if you try to get into flow-like states by losing sense of self. But that's not the real thing. Video games are also a way to kind of time goes by. You, you're not really aware of yourself. But that's not flow. Flow is real life. So that, that's a big difference because that's video games are designed for people to enter flow-like states through the flow channel. That's where your strengths are challenged in the right amount. Uh-huh. And so... So like flow like, okay. Yeah. So flow like states I talk about, and, and I'll, I'll get back to flow, but I talk about addiction developing because people are trying to pursue happiness. They just go about it the wrong way. Right. Hitting the pleasure bell, getting into flow like states, trying to fit in a group or stay with somebody, you know, if the relationship isn't good, meaning and purpose, big one, you know, drugs, alcohol process are very meaningful and then achievement. So recovery, I think relapse rates are going to go down. If we make if we help people pursue happiness effectively, evidence-based, mm-hmm. and remove the bad. So it's not, a, it's not a replacement of business as usual. It's let's use the things that help and add to it by this whole new skill set. So we train all our staff and we take everybody from the kitchen staff to admissions. Mm-hmm. Everybody in between, we, we do this. So, um, so Flow Lake State, so a good example is my son who is now a sophomore in high school and he's really good at basketball. So he plays on the varsity team, but he's not NBA good. And if you were to put him in an NBA game, his his strengths are not there yet. So he would be uh, overwhelmed and anxious. That that just that would be crazy. If he were to play on the ninth grade C squad, his skills are way higher than that. He'd be bored. So the the trick about getting into flow is you have to align the challenge with your ability. And in flow, it's like the musician being in the groove or an athlete in this mode. You're not really aware of what's going on. Like looking back, you're like, yeah, that was pleasurable. But it's not like you're feeling pleasure. You're just, you're just sort of in this state where your, your strengths and your abilities are getting challenged and you're getting instant feedback, right? Like, so you're sort of like in a dance with what's going on around you. Mm-hmm. And time flies and it's, and it's a great thing. And it's not only a selfish endeavor, Chick sent me, I found out, because when you enter a state of flow more often, people that do that, not only are they more complex, like that, you know, your skills get better. Obviously, spend more time playing a piano, right? But you also, it's weird, you, uh, you get integrated with those around you. So that the whole like me versus not me, that barrier kind of goes away. 
So you're more integrated. So it's not just a selfish behavior. And yeah, so that's E in PERMA. And that's where you find human happiness. You know, again, like when I read about, when I, when I learned about um, delivering happiness, the owner of the rehab had us read Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea, founded Zappos. So we did this whole offsite thing too. It was great. And that's when I learned about it. And I saw the application of positive psychology to addiction. But at that point, I was maybe eight years sober or so. And I, I think, what do I have? I got sober in 03. So whatever that is, 18, am I 18 years sober? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. No. In, yeah. Okay. Yeah. My, hus- my husband's 03. So 18. Okay. All right. Because he got sober at, no, ooh, it's 18 or 19. Ooh, in any case, in not 20. <laughs> 20 is a sexy birthday. I, I'm not there yet. So yeah. So I saw the application of positive psychology to recovery, to addiction work. Because recovery is not just abstinence, right? That's like not hurting, not in pain. That's like if you right. remove the bad. Remove it, relieving the misery. Yeah, because you can remove depression without instilling hope. Right. And I didn't you know, know that number. It's interesting having been in this field a long time, like listening to that and listening, listening to thinking about it as I took some, I took some notes on it, but just thinking about like the fact that you you can take away this miserable piece, but it's actually, that doesn't make you happy. Like that takes you to this flat state. And I, it's funny, I always talked about how with antidepressants, I, what I always would say to people about, you know, me taking antidepressants or, or, or my, my belief in their value was, look, I have clinical depression. Antidepressants aren't the work. They allow me to get to the table to start the work. That's what they are for. That's what they've been for me. They get me to, they, they just take me to zero so that I can start to do the, the, you know, the emotional work. They're not the work. And understanding that as like an entirety about abstinence, sobriety, all of those things, you know, it's that it's all in that, that same line, but it means that we have a shit ton of work to do once we get to zero. And there's a lot of, there are a lot of people who aren't in a program, who aren't in 12 step, who, who use other, you know, other modalities. And um, unless you're working like a really hardcore program or you have some thing, you may not be working on those happiness building skills. Right. Most people are completely unaware of their strengths. Right. You ask the average American what your strengths are like, what? Yeah. And, and to what you said, I, I have like a, a nice rhyme. Oh, uh, good. We love rhymes. So there's no skill in a pill. Mm, I like that. There's yeah, no skill even, in a pill. Even the playing field gets us to the table. Right. Right. Yeah. But there's no skill in a pill. So if you think it like, it's just going to happen passively, mm, you know, I think a lot of, it. I've never heard in all of, you know, and I, I've been in a lot of treatment centers where there were, you know, they were heavily medicating us, uh, you know, even as kids. And, um, and I have never heard anyone ask about the other stuff that we're doing, who was prescribing a pill to me. Right. Like we, we get trained to do what we get paid for. Right. So there's no code for hope, optimism. <laughs> there's no code for well being. Right. Yet, yet there's validated surveys on like uh, meaning. There's meaning in life questionnaire. It is validated. And oh, yeah, on, there on, the, ways... on the site, right? Sure. I mean, yeah, it's me- the meaning in life. It's a validated uh, questionnaire. So you can discover like where people are and their interventions that can help. Like the PANAS, PANAS is a well-being survey. It's valid. And basically, you, you know, there's no, there's no, there's no reimbursement for this 
zero to plus 10 yet. For for outcomes either. I mean, they're starting that, but you know, that's why outcomes are starting to matter more. The hope is that we can have codes for outcomes. Yeah, well, I know, but so like most places continue to have a unidimensional, like myopic view, and they only measure continuous lengths of sobriety as if that that's not like life, right? People have developed relationships and meaning and you know that they're they have well-being. They might have a relapse, but if you look at like over a two-year span, like if they were using daily before and now they've used three weeks out of two years, that's not a failure at all. That's pretty good. You know, especially if they've got other indicators of success, like, you know, quality of life questionnaire that World Health Organization uses, say. But yeah, we're starting to do that. We're starting to, in addition to continue with like sobriety, relapse, like how, how long the relapse is so that like it's right. proxy for the acuity of the relapse. We're, we're also going to be testing meaning in life and well-being at zero, six months and a year. And so I, I'm, I'm sure it's going to go up. I almost feel like it's cheating because like when you get, when you first come in, your well-being <laughs> is low and your meaning is low. But I mean, yeah, yeah. It's, it's right. There's nowhere, nowhere to go but up, you hope. what you? I'm sure you get people into your program who've been to other programs and that you probably get feedback on your differentiator with positive psychology. You know, there's, there's, you're not making victims of people and you're not pathologizing them, right? You are, you are finding their strengths and building on those and then, and showing them how to create a life based on those things to engage and build happiness. When people come in from other places and they talk to you about their experience, the differentiators, how do they describe it? Oh my God. Like, I I just, I don't, I don't feel right bragging because it's going to sound like it, but seriously, the, the feedback is great. And my favorite type of feedback is the person who comes in, like I've been treatment before. It's all Mm -hmm. BS. I'm not gonna buy into it. And then after a couple of weeks, like, okay, I was going to leave, but this, I'm going to stay because, you know, um, engage, engagement and, and completion are bit, are really good predictors for long-term good yes. recovery. So, you know, the people that, that are either on the fence and don't want to come in and we, we do a little positive psychology sauce on them over the phone or like slowly over time. And then they kind of stay to me that that's great. But yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a certain group of people that, that are just super pessimistic and they're not going to like anything at first. Hmm. So if they open up, like to me, it's like, okay, this, this got through because this person came in with defenses. You know, there's a lot of people that love it from the get-go and it's the greatest thing. And it, it does, it's changed staff lives. I mean, people have quit smoking, even though that's not part of it, obviously, right. you know? So yeah, the feedback's, the feedback's great. It, it really is. When you look, when you are meeting with someone and they have been using for 20 years and their life is in complete shambles. And the thing that they're good at is mugging the drug dealer and, you know, and negotiating discounts or whatever, or, you know, they're really good at guessing how much money they're going to get from the coin star. How do you find the strengths from a person whose life is in total shambles? And the only thing they've been doing for a long period of time are things that are questionable at best. So yeah, so like the the negotiating, the uh, the guessing uh, for Coinstar, 
not the mugging. I'm not going to say that's use of strengths, but everybody has used their strengths because guess what? We all have 24 universal character strengths and everybody in our program takes the VIA, VIA, which you, it's free. Where is that? So at authentichappiness.org or the UPenn site, just type in Martin Seligman or the, um, what is it called? The VIA Institute, okay. VIA Institute. You can, you know, you take the, you take it for free. You get a list of your strengths. You can pay a few bucks for like an in-depth, like report of what the strengths are. But we, you know, we just have them get their strengths so they know what they are. So everybody has them. It's amazing. That that's one of the first things Dr. Seligman and and his team did was okay. We need we need to measure something. Right. So they like they scoured the literature from the beginning of time, right? the Hammurabi code, which was a samurai code to the Testaments to cat in the hat and the Klingon empire, like everything. And they looked for, there's like all these criteria and they discovered that, yeah, these are, there's 24 universal human character strengths that are valued through time and space. And they have a cross cultural correlation of 0.8, which is great, but it's just a list of your character strengths listed, how they show up in you. So you comparing them to a friend, it doesn't, that really is not valid. So everybody has them, that's, you get a sort of boost of well-being using those. And we, you know, there's something called positive psychotherapy, which head-to-head for depression did better than CBT. I'm not saying like for a heavy clinical, you know, population, like co-occurring and they're in, you know, the right. and shampoo. All we're going to do is that, but we use something called strength-based problem solving. We have them do interventions with their strengths, you know, in addition to uh, resiliency work and forgiveness work and trauma you know, and shame resilience. And so we do, we do everything together, but everybody has these strengths. And when they are tasked with being a strength detective, seeing them in others, perspective changes. That is, we don't put on rose colored glass and say, only see the good, but man, when you're looking for other people's strengths and when you're identifying how you use them or how you can use them in new ways, it changes you. You can't help it. Right. And you're no longer mugging drug dealers. So like self-efficacy builds slowly, right? Right. Exactly. Can you give me an example of a, a you know it can be made up or 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 a real example of a strengths based problem solving in the context of getting sober? Sure. Hit me with a problem. Okay. Hold on. Thinking. Uh, okay. I'm in treatment, and my husband thinks that I'm just a loser and need to just stop drinking and that I've just make a lot of excuses and waste a lot of money. Okay. So what, what issue are you, what are you trying to grapple with? Is it that like, okay, that's a great setup, but like, does he want you to stay in treatment? Are you trying to leave or are you just, he, well, he wants me to stay in treatment, but he wants me to be fixed when I get home. Okay. What are you wanting? I'd like to be fixed when I get home too. Okay. (laughs) So, um, Okay, that's not something like I would use strength based problem solving for because this is an education piece. Like I, I would have to educate both. Okay, of them. okay, okay. Right? So you know what I mean? Like you don't you don't like you don't like your counselor or um, you know you want to switch counselors, you want to leave, whatever it might be. Like there's there's a three pronged approach. Just to let okay. you know, like you it, it's 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 a aware, explore, apply. Aware is um, awareness of your strength. So you take the via. You, you know, we kind of, you know what they are. You're aware of them. Explore right. is like, so um, I ask you about things that any challenges you've overcome in the past. And you tell me the story. And then we look at together, like what strengths you've used. We look at what are your top strengths and how how they came into play. 
So you have a you have a history, personal history of not only using strengths, but using them to overcome an obstacle. So then we talk about how can you apply them moving forward? And and it's this is like the very condensed version. Yeah. yeah. But it, it it's key that um I as the clinician, I don't just say use more creativity in the future on this problem. Like that's not what is helpful. But when you discover that, oh my God, you know, actually I'm a pretty good negotiator, right? So that means I can read, I have social intelligence. It's one of the seven most important character strengths. And, um, you know, I've got perspective and judgment. And so I have these strengths and, you know, self-efficacy is the belief that one can do things to overcome obstacles. Way more important than self-esteem. Self-esteem is what you think other people think of you. That's like useless. That's not helpful at all. So efficacy is like little blue engine thoughts. Like, I think I can, I think I can. Knowing that you've used them before is great. So you explore that. And then you ask somebody like, okay, what do you think you can do in this particular problem? Knowing that, say, those those three strengths you just mentioned you used. And then we come up with a plan together. So I ha- I'm going to, I'm in treatment and I'm going to be returning to a job that requires a lot of social drinking and entertaining. And I'm concerned that I'm not going to be able to stay sober. All right. Then change jobs. No, I'm kidding. That, that's the easy one. <laughs> uh, it's an easy one for you and me, but you know, people. Yeah. So like I have a, that that's common, right? Yeah. Right. So I have like a can spiel and that is like, at first it's all, it's totally important that you don't disclose too much in the wrong context. So it's really none of anybody's business why you're not drinking. You can say, I, I am on doing this health kick. I'm on antibiotics. My doctor's recommending whatever. Like there's there's various things, but you know, probably the easiest is I'm on antibiotics. And if you know they don't buy that, whatever. That's that's on them. And it's only because again, like you're gonna want to only feed relationships the weight that it can, it can sustain like a bridge. So work relationships, they're not very sturdy, especially like sales. They're, they're just like rickety bridges. You don't put too much weight on them. It'll collapse. You know, a close friend or a marble jar friend, as Renee Brown says, you could tell, I mean, obviously nothing will, nothing will make them go away from you or judge you. So like if, if you disclose something and it hurts your, your situation, it's going to cause a lot of stress might cause you to drink. So yeah. And Listen, if you're going to guard your recovery, it means sacrificing something. And I joked about quitting your job, but a lot of people end up thinking, okay, like there's got it. There's something else I can do. Like sales is not the only thing I can do, or at least this sales position, which involves drinking every night. Yeah, that's that's not compatible with my new goals in life. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've had that conversation with a lot of people and I've had the conversation about people who are bartenders who want to go back to bartending and, you know, making those decisions. And I think that, you know, we definitely have to change a lot of things about our life and, and, and change the priorities, right. Reprioritize. And maybe that's a strength, a skill, right. Learning how to think about where you're going to put your time and how you're going to prioritize and what your new values are because you have to create those new values in it, looking ahead i believe right now you guys are the only positive psychology based treatment center is that is that accurate yes okay there's other places there's other places that use my curriculum okay 
there's a curriculum for every level of care and um there's it, it's manualized but not in the sense that like it's like a soup nazi you have to absolute <laughs> but but you know there's 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 notes that you could put in the chart that are sort of guideline notes there's so there's iop php rtc there's like the facilitator manuals something that you if you were leading a group you would read the night before a few times until you've done that group enough or there's pearls and and all that and i give it away yeah. the training the training is is you know it's like there's a small cost but i really want to improve outcomes so i i developed this and the my old partner from a previous rehab wanted to use the name so i was like okay yeah i love the name it's totally sexy let's do it and but but i but like i've trademarked it i've copyrighted it it's you know that wasn't a small expense but i you know our outcomes are so bad and I truly feel like this is going to prove outcomes. I, I don't have studies yet, but we're, we are starting them. It's just been, I've been dragging my feet a lot. I, yeah, there's too much water under the bridge to explain it, but um, yeah. So there, there's a, there's a few places using it, but no other place can call themselves positive recovery centers, but we have two rehabs in Texas and 12 IOPs in Texas, like awesome. all over. Yeah. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Ashley Joe, producer of The Courage to Change, and I wanted to chime in and let you know about our new mobile app, Lion Rock Life. It is now available for download on your phone or tablet from the App Store or the Google Play Store. So here's the download on the app. The app is designed to streamline your online recovery experience, allowing you to view live meetings in progress, join meetings quickly, and build stronger connections in recovery. So whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're in recovery for something other than drugs or alcohol, the Lion Rock Life mobile app has a space for you. On the app, you'll find alternative recovery meetings, and traditional meeting offerings. We have everything from recovery fellowship to community workshops, LGBTQIA+, women's meetings, men's meetings, 12-step meetings, and more. With over 75 meetings on our weekly schedule, you'll find a meeting that meets your individual needs. And with the app, you can personalize your recovery experience join with privacy in mind, and recover with the support of an incredible community. Join us and find inspiration for a lifetime of recovery by downloading the Lion Rock Life mobile app today. If you have questions or need help, simply visit lionrock.life slash mobile dash app. Thanks. So uh, my... my so I sort of wrap up question for you and it's, it's not a small one. Um, but how has the pandemic COVID and everything that, you know, comes along with that, whether that's, you know, political things or the like, how has that, how have you seen that affect our population and how have you used positive psychology in a way that might be different or the same in that and seeing seen different things with regard to treating treating incoming patients with with problems and circumstances we've never seen before. Okay. Yeah. Well, so when the pandemic started, our our numbers dropped a little bit. 
it wasn't it wasn't catastrophic, but yeah, for a few months it was this is a new normal. And after a while it started to pick up again, but people were sicker. Hmm. Like in my, this is not something that I've heard other people say, but I, I swear by it. Like I started seeing more acutely ill people. And I, I think it's because the less acutely ill didn't have as much urgency to come in with the stimulus checks and the unemployment extension and and the rent, like the eviction, mm-hmm. uh, you know, delay or whatever. So I, I think that those that needed it, like absolutely needed it. And that's part of it. I, I don't, I mean, so medically it was more intense and all that. And, you know, I don't try to throw too much on someone's plate till they're done stabilizing. So I, you know, I don't, I didn't change. I don't, we haven't changed our approach. The The sort of positive recovery umbrella is such that, it's not prescriptive. Like we don't, we don't tell everybody they have to go to 12 steps. We don't tell everybody they don't have, we, we try to figure out what's driving the person and they, they show us, we authentically listen. And and so it's, you know, it's all customed in, in that way. Right. So I, you know, there sometimes, sometimes it sounds cynical, but like, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. You've been doing this for a long time. I bet. Uh, sometimes all that changes is names and faces like, you know, addiction is very, uh, it's very predictable, right? Like there yeah. follows a course. It's not, and it's never, never up. It's always down. And, you know, there's, if look, if there's a name for something they've done, that means someone else has done it before, you know, we're not, we're not terminally unique. We're not like the worst or the best. And so we just try to treat everybody like that. Um, the, the challenge in treatment has been, the the fluidity of the covid the you know the quarantine and isolation recommendations that have changed that that I'm not complaining I'm just you know keeping up with that and then ha- the challenge for any any rehab that doesn't have like private rooms which I know that's a cost that's a huge cost I we we are not that like what just the challenge of ha- having to isolate the the people and then staff who are positive and yes we're a healthcare organization so we can still work but Let's remember that we care about our, you know, employees and in the community. So like navigating that has been a challenge, but we're not a lot, you know, I think we're all doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. I mean, it was, it was a wild ride for us, but it was different because we've always been an online program. So that was, that was actually the 2020 was the moment that the whole world recognized that online (laughs) online treatment so how worked. long have you been doing it how long have you been doing it online sorry for interrupting oh no that's okay uh 20 since 2010 11 years damn that is a lot of foresight yeah I mean, that's so, great thank you yeah and so so for us it was it was you know in some way you know this weird positive dynamic but also obviously tremendous pain and hurt but you know one of the things i have seen with our population is less hope more pain about the world and and an outlook that is very unclear and unsure because the things in society that used to feel relatively like you do these things and this happens. Yeah. Thank you. Stable. No longer feels that way. And so I see therapists, this is interesting. I see therapists struggling more than ever listening to the pain and suffering in a way that you know, they, they were sort of, it was kind of like before, but like, I've heard it all. And now it's, there's something new, you know? And when I 
read about positive psychology, the thing that I hear that we're lacking often is hope. And I wondered if positive psychology may have an aspect of building hope in this new world that we haven't been using in CBT or in other areas. Yes. Yeah, so to answer your question, absolutely. There, you know, using optimistic explanatory styles a way to improve hope. And there was at the beginning of the ep- epidemic, Marty, Dr. Seligman, and all the map, uh, all the alumni from the program had had a call. And with uh, sorry, Aaron uh, Sean Anker. Aaron, Aker? No, no, oh, no, no. Aaron. Who who founded cognitive behavioral therapy? That guy, Beckett. No, Dr. Aaron Beck. Beck. Okay, Beckett. Yeah. So he was on. His daughter was on. Marty was on. And um, yeah, they were talking about that and applying positive psychology to clinical populations. Then we had breakout groups, and so I was in it with the psychologist on the you know masters of applied psychology and a couple other people. And we're like, okay, welcome to the party, man. We've been doing this. So so. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, yep. there's awareness, but it's like, okay, you know, yeah, we yeah, absolutely. Good idea. So that was sort of <laughs> good, good idea. Great. Yeah. 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 Um, it, it's I actually think that the the difficulty of hope is is pervasive amongst the population right now. Um, not just addicts and alcoholics, which is, you know, addicts, alcoholics, addiction, however you want to classify it, they don't have unique problems. They have unique reactions, right? We, we don't have unique problems. I don't, I don't have unique problems. I just have a unique reaction to those problems and the intensity of what's gone on in the world over the last couple of years, you know, has in my mind created a level of intensity in reactions and even people who didn't struggle with addiction before are finding themselves having more intense reactions than they might have otherwise because some of their coping skills are gone. So it's been a really interesting time to see how everyone is responding to new struggles and and the the mix up is my, my girlfriend said that you know she said when we all got locked down, she says, well, this is, this, you know, if you're in 12 step, this is our Super Bowl. We've been training for this, right? We've been, you know, this is, we've been putting away our insurance and talking to people and helping people and creating community and, and working through discomfort and, you know, like all these things. She's like, this is our Super Bowl. Now we get to take all the skills we've been learning and just throw everything at it. And in some ways that was true, right? And then and then in, in other ways, I saw people who hadn't been doing that work for a long time, you know, pass away. So it was a, you know, kind of very illuminating. Absolutely. Good point. Well said. Totally. I agree. Yeah. Our Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yeah. I thought that was so funny. How can the addiction treatment field help change the view to the medical field, the medical professionals of what we do? What can we do, like as the average contributor, what can we do to help? Stop saying clean and dirty. Stop saying I've been clean or, you know, stop saying a UA if it's positive is dirty because clean and dirty are judgment terms. If somebody's blood, if somebody's blood sugar is high on a test, we don't say it's dirty or sticky sweet. Say, you know, I've been clean for two weeks. That's that's implying that when the disease is active, it's dirty. There's something wrong. That's so the words we use, and I understand, you know, I speak NA fluently, I speak AA fluently. I understand what's said in NA. I mean, look, I I earned my place in everywhere. 
But yeah, we can change how we what should speak we say? about positive or sober or in recovery rather than clean and dirty. Okay. And then what about the what about drug testing? Right. The drug test is positive or negative. Okay. Right. Same way HIV or corona or whatever. That's it. Right. So positive, negative. I've been saying I'm a person in long-term recovery. And what about our our terminology? Like I'm an alcoholic or I like, do you have, should we use different terminology with regard to that? Yeah. So um, I know a lot of, a lot of people in the field, a lot of professionals don't like certain terms, but I'm an addict. And just like I would say I was a diabetic, right? I say it with neutrality and ownership. So I don't have a problem with alcoholism, alcoholic, addict, nothing like that to me uh, is charged. What about I have alcoholism? Yeah. I mean, that's another way of saying it. I have diabetes. Right. Like I know people split hairs, like are like I'm recovered from, I'm in recovery. Listen, as long as you're not saying something completely crazy, like, okay, whatever you want. Like, it's not like the wild, wild west, but it, it, nobody says like, I'm recovered from diabetes. So saying I've recovered from whatever, fill in the blank, that's a chronic lifelong disease most of the time. It just doesn't make sense. Right. But I don't, I don't like, the yeah, only time yeah, I correct yeah. people, I correct people if I hear dirty or, or, or clean. clean. That's the big, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I think that's it's a really that's a really great one because it's something that we can all do. Um, that's really accessible to all of us who are in the field and come in contact and get interviewed or whatever it is. We can use different terminology to talk about our population because I think that it's super important that we we have a PR problem. <laughs> we have a big, you know, those of us, alcoholism addiction as a PR problem and part of getting better help and, and, and more attention and more understanding of it is changing the messaging on. And so I think that's a great clean and dirty taking those out. That's, that's a, you know, something all of us can do to change the messaging. Right. And we have a PR problem because like you said, you know, we do things other people don't. Like if you have diabetes, you don't you don't hold up a Krispy Kreme. <laughs> you know though, I, I'm not saying we should try it, but thought experiment, maybe an episode of Black Mirror. I bet if you made sugar illegal. Oh my goodness. I bet I would bet money, Bitcoin money, that People would hold up Krispy Kreme or, or not Krispy Kreme. They wouldn't hold up Krispy Kremes. They would, the black market would be oh, as, God. as lethal as it ever was. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. I, I think people would, I, I don't think people really truly understand the addiction, to, their addictions to processed foods and how intense it would be if they didn't have access to them, but could, could get illegal access. So new episode of uh new episode new thought experiment yeah man let's do it let's write it yeah people are killing each other over sugar i feel like my i i was drunk and high for a very long time during this period of my life but i feel like there's something called the sugar cane wars but maybe that was just money no i think there was yeah no sugar cane wars probably had it's probably tied in with slavery Right, right. I, I, yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. feel like it was tied in with like sugar addiction. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, so it's so it's new. All right. 
But yeah, I mean, right, right. I, you, have, you have an original plot. So yeah. Yeah. Right. It's I mean, out there. If somebody tries to steal it from you. September 15th, 2021. You came up with it. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. I want my credit. Well, I really appreciate your time and the work that you're doing. It's so awesome to have different providers out there. You know, we need as many options and as many modalities as we possibly can to help people. And 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 I just I love that you are in recovery and able to give a really cool perspective from both, you know, the the physician and and the the addict. So I, I'm grateful to you and uh, I really, really appreciate your time. Thanks for, for coming. Of course. Of course. I hope you'll be, you'll be a guest on mine. If Abs- I can absolutely get, get your email, I'll, uh, yeah, we'll arrange it because I, I, I'm dying to know about where your husband's people come from, but don't tell me right now. Blasting game. I no, I need, I just need to wait until you're, do you, until I do you know anything? Do you know, I know anything? Nothing. About- I know nothing about you. Nothing about me. Okay. Check this out. Where my husband's from. It's funny that you just said that. My husband's from Sugarland. Okay, that's okay. Awesome. Yeah. Don't tell me. Don't tell me anymore. Okay. I will. I, I, I want to be authentically surprised. Yeah. Well, that's why I thought you. I was like, oh, he must know because I was going to tell you. Like yeah, my my in laws there. My husband grew up in Sugarland, so Houston is. I'm, I'm not a I, uh, Houston. It's horrible here. It's just so hot, oppressive, and ugly. It's terrible. I really tried. <laughs> to be nice about it. I really did. I said all the things like I I was very strengths-based about Houston. I came up with like, I feel very skinny here, things like that. <laughs> 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 they have a great Whole Foods yeah, in Sugarland. Yeah. yeah, they do. Brick is beautiful. You know, I tried. I really did. But the the mosquitoes and the Flooding and all that. The yeah. flooding, the mosquitoes, and the random alligators on the golf course um, <laughs> was just. You don't have that in California. That's so. Awesome. No, no, no. I did not. No one told me about yeah, you that. Have sea lions and and, yeah. and like you know ocean beavers and all these like great yeah. otters. We, and... we have wildfires, but you know. Oh, that's true. I wouldn't. But uh, but yeah, well, yeah. Man. Well, thanks for having me. And Appreciate we'll speak it. Again. Sounds okay. good. Thank you so much. Take care. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.life. LionRock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting's schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at LionRock.life.